I became a mother at 17, lived with my family, my folks and my sisters for the first couple of years, which was amazing in so many ways because I had the village, I had the community. My life was so rich in those first couple of years because people were like fighting over who was going to hold the baby while I would do my schoolwork or shower or go to the gym or whatever. And it just felt so right. You know, I didn't really understand all the injustices around motherhood until I got married and was in a single family household with my partner and was raising kids in a more conventional way. That's when I was like, this is rigged. This is not working well. This is hard. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Startup Parent Podcast. This is the show where we get to talk to working parents, entrepreneurs, and business leaders about what it looks like to raise kids while also building companies. If you're in the thick of it with your career or your business and you've got little ones at home, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. Beth Berry is a facilitator. She's a mother of four, and she's the author of Motherwhelmed, Challenging Norms, Untangling Truths, and Restoring Our Worth in the World. When Beth became a mother for the first time at age 17, she had more of a village of support, but it wasn't until she got married that she understood the injustices around motherhood. That's when Beth realized the system was rigged and it wasn't in her favor. In this interview, I get to talk to author and changemaker Beth Berry about her experience becoming a parent, what it's like to have grown children, adult children now, and the key differences between raising kids with the support of a village versus the conventional single-family household model and structure. Beth is fiery and passionate about the importance of being in community with other people, and she has an entire program on re-villaging, how to build the village that you need, and what systems perpetuate loneliness to be a mother in today's society. In this episode, we're going to dig into why it can be so difficult to find the support that we need how to practice vulnerability in forming new relationships, how to show up for each other and how to have people show up for you, and also some of the idealism there is around motherhood and what compromises we make along the way when we reckon with the reality of what actually is right in front of us. One of the hardest things about being a CEO or being a manager or a leader is finding and carving out space to think. That is one of the reasons why I made the Wise Women's Council. Twice a month, we bring wise, vetted experts in to support you in your leadership development. Our core business trainings help CEOs and leaders make complex decisions more easily, learn how to say no, learn how to ask for help, and build a life and a business based on whole person leadership principles. Our leadership sessions support you in deepening your own internal wisdom, building at your personal growth edges, and improving your stamina and energy reserves. It's called the Wise Women's Council. We've been running it for six years now, and we open only twice a year for enrollments, once in the spring and once in the fall. If you want to find out more about this program and what people have to say about it, head over to startupparent.com slash WWC. Hey, everyone. I'm so excited to have Beth Berry joining me. Beth, I have been following you on Instagram. I don't know how I found you. Like, it's the magic of the interconnected nature of like following and talking to people. It's not the algorithm. It's friends. It's the network. It's like the people who showed me to you. Screw the algorithm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's cool people. People that I really like and admire. And once I started reading your notes about just the passion and it's not rage. 
And it's not vehemence. What is it? Exuberance? There's just something there where you're just like, listen, the world not designed for you. This is broken. You're not broken. And you just peel back the layers and remind people that being isolated and alone in motherhood is a problem. And it's not your Absolutely. fault. There's some rage under there. Absolutely. Yeah. It's conviction. It's passion. I feel very, very passionate about the work that I'm doing and the women that I'm working with who are amazing and having really a hard time getting that amazingness out in the world and feeling amazing themselves because of the systems and structures and norms and narratives. So on this podcast, we talk to a lot of people about the systems, the structures, the machine. We've had folks like Sarah Lacey come on and talk about the patriarchy and so many different folks. What I want to spend time with you today is looking at you teach this course on revillaging and you talk about how to find your village and build your village and the steps needed, the things that people are longing for, particularly mothers, towards interconnectedness, towards trust, towards better contract with the self. So that's where I want to take us today. But before we dive right in, can you ground us and tell us a little bit about today? Where are you located in the world? And what time did you wake up this morning? I'm in Asheville, North Carolina in the mountains. Gorgeous, you know, spring weather here today. My neighbors just started building a fence today. So we'll see if there's noise associated. We'll see. I woke up around 530. That's my normal wake up time. I don't even have kids waking me up anymore. It's just I'm an early bird. And that's my favorite writing time, my favorite time to just ground and get clear. So it's been a good morning. How old is your youngest? 16. 16. Yeah, because in the book I saw like 13 to 25, I feel like. And I don't know when the book came out. Yeah. How old are they now? 16, 18, 22, and 28. 16, 18, 22, and 28. Yes. Tell us a little bit about this morning. What does your writing process look like? Do you get to go outside? Who are you in the morning? My mornings differ day to day because I don't live with my partner. And I have my kids every other week. Sometimes I'm home and getting up in the morning and making lunches still because I actually enjoy these last moments of making lunches. <laughs> Unlike the gruel and the grind that it was before, now I'm like, oh my gosh, there's only a few more lunches to be made before and never again am I making lunches. So in a very different place with that now. And then sometimes I'm waking up and, you know, making my tea and sitting right down in front of my computer and getting right back into whatever project I have going. And sometimes I'm sitting in my sunroom and looking out and watching things, the light come in and sometimes playing my harmonium and have a lot of variety in my morning. Sometimes I'll get up and go straight to the gym. So I kind of like the variety. I love that too, because there's so much fixation on like a rigid morning routine and not enough fluidity. Go into the bowels of the internet for advice and you're going to get a list of six things you're supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. And I just don't think it's realistic for most humans to have rigid routines. It's nice to aspire to have enough routine that you feel supported, but not so much so that you feel like you're going to fail Anytime you change something up or things need to change because life throws something at you, you know, when we get a little too fixated on rhythm. And I understand why we do because we're trying to feel sane, but it's a fine line because sometimes it can feel flat and 
we're robots. Yeah. And the words you used are really great. A structure that's too rigid, that'll break. Structure can be nice. I like they use that word. There can be a benefit to structure, but if it's too rigid or too fixed, then you're not able to actually live with that. Yeah. So I've got this book here, everyone, Mother Wound, Challenging Norms, Untangling Truths, and Restoring Our Worth to the World. In the book, you start and you go through some of your story. You became a mother as a teenager and then pursued a path that was full of sustainability and homeschooling, homesteading. Give us the context of what that life looked like. I became a mother at 17, lived with my family, my folks and my sisters for the first couple of years, which is amazing in so many ways because I had the village, I had the community. My life was so rich in those first couple of years because people were like fighting over who was going to hold the baby while I would do my schoolwork or shower or go to the gym or whatever. And it just felt so right. You know, I didn't really understand all the injustices around motherhood until I got married and was in a single family household with my partner and was raising kids in a more conventional way. That's when I was like, this is rigged. This is not working well. This is hard. We were extremely idealistic and passionate. And, you know, I studied sustainable agriculture in school and we were going to be farmers and we were going to save the world. And I was going to do it through motherhood because that was my world. My sense of self, my identity formed as a mother. I was a rebellious teenager looking for purpose. I can see now <laughs> and then found it and then went to stove headfirst into motherhood. That was everything from the cloth diapering and the growing our food. But what I quickly came up against was how my idealism was driving and my passions were driving, but my circumstances didn't really allow for me to do a whole lot of these things that I wanted to be doing or to do even a fraction of what I wanted to be doing. So I suffered from this feeling, constant feeling like I wasn't doing enough, like I wasn't enough. There must be something wrong with me that I can't keep up with all these ideals because I knew they were beautiful ideals. I was like, I want to impart to my children that you want to have environmental consciousness, that we want to have nature connection, that we want to be creative in our lives, that we want to be musical. That I had all of these aspirations that were beautiful, but I didn't understand at the time that what I was trying to do was basically be a whole village myself. I didn't get it. I didn't understand. So I just constantly felt like, God, what am I doing wrong? Like, I'm not able to do all these things. I was burning out. I actually, because I was so young, I had a ton of energy in those early 20s, mid 20s. And so I actually kind of deluded myself for a while that I actually could do so many things until I then ended up with four babies. And my energy started dropping. And then I had to start compromising some of those values. And that moment of like, all right, I guess we're doing frozen pizzas and just feeling like it was like a dagger to my heart. It was like, I make the pizza. I've always made the pizza. We make kids who have healthy homes make pizza. Like when I look back at it now, it's laughable because my life is really different. And I've let go of so much of that. And I have so much more self-compassion. But I was really distraught, truly distraught by how many compromises I was having to make just to feel sane. Because that was the tipping point. I realized that I could keep up the pursuit of this idealized version of life for my kids and be not healthy emotionally, mentally, 
that would be my legacy. That would be their familial inheritance. Or I could work on relax some of these values and take care of myself better so that I could ensure that they then had a healthy, happy, joy-filled mother. And ultimately, I decided that was more important. So that's kind of a big shift in my thinking. I mean, this is such an important moment because I know how many women out there, mothers, are dealing with that. You have an idea, you have an aspiration, you have values that you want to fulfill or pursue, right? Like you want to be the person who makes the food, maybe from the earth, or you don't want to use styrofoam plates, like you mentioned in your book. And then you're in this place where you're getting three hours of sleep or two hours of sleep, and you're still not able to do it all. And then you do what maybe feels like a shortcut. And then there's the guilt and the shame and the embarrassment. And then you're swimming in this soup of emotions, feeling horrible and burned out and not doing the thing that you want. And you're just like, why is motherhood such a disaster? Like, what am I doing wrong? And so many people take this personally, which is something that I think you in your journey and in your writing have done a tremendous job at, which is saying this is not a personal failing. Yeah, that's really at the heart of all of the work that I'm doing is that we've got to start looking at the systems, the structures, the norms, the narratives, and break down, chip away at this narrative that it's my personal inadequacy is the reason that motherhood is so hard. My personal inadequacy is the reason that I can't keep up these ideals. That's not it. It's just not it. We are some of the most invested, passionate, loving creatures on the planet, mothers. We are so wholeheartedly invested in bettering the world for our kids, or even just giving our kids a lot. Our hearts are in it. Our work is there. We're doing so much. And it isn't that we're not doing enough. That's just not it. That's not it. And it's not a personal failing. And you're not doing anything wrong. And this is me last year. Like if you are in bed watching a million episodes of TV, because I was so burned out from the pandemic, I started with a one-year-old and a three-year-old at the pandemic outset. I'm in bed every day from three to five watching TV. And you can get into that. I'll just talk from my experience that mind trap of, see, I'm a bad mom. Like, see, I'm not actually working that hard. But there's so much forgiveness and self-compassion that happened for me then too, because it was like, no, 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 no. This is a response to you pouring so much in. This is you being burned out. Didn't feel like a choice. It didn't feel like, oh, and then I'm just going to skip a doodle over here. (laughs) I think unpacking that can be so hard. And we've spent some time on this podcast. For those of you listening, if you happen to be brand new, we've got 200 episodes where we, I don't know what they call it, Rage Against the Machine. But we talk about all the systems and the structures. And I think that what you do so well is talk about this revillaging. It's like rebuilding the connective tissue of being in community with other people. And I want to read this quote that you start chapter 14 with. Well, I'm going to read your words, not the quote. You said, I haven't always felt supported and held and treasured by other women like I do now. I haven't always felt that I belonged. Until half a dozen years ago, in fact, I kept a safe distance from the more vulnerable ways of connecting with women, mothers, and non-mothers alike. Sure, we'd swap childcare and empathize about the chaos of raising kids and the challenges of marriages. Occasionally, I'd even ask for help when life felt especially hard. But for a long time, I kept my help, my heart guarded. And you end up saying, I now realize that in my effort to stay safe, I was actually starving my soul. 
This really cuts into it for me because you studied urban agriculture, did you say? Sustainable agriculture. Sustainable agriculture. I did urban planning and landscape architecture. You mentioned bowling alone in your book. And I remember reading that book and we live in boxes. We eat food from boxes. We live in a box house. We drive in boxed cars. We put our kids in boxed cribs. We go to boxed cubicles for most people who work. We are literally starving for connection. And then there's the inner landscape of being so afraid of it too. Can you talk more about what that's like? And then we're going to get into what do you do about it? Yeah, gosh. We have this myth, I think, of independence within our culture where that's part of what this country is founded on is, is our rugged individualism. And it's deeply detrimental that the fact that we don't live in small, close-knit communities anymore is so much of the reason that we're struggling as hard as we are, particularly mothers, but it's affecting everyone in such massive ways and contributing to this narrative that I'm not doing enough. And it's because when we look around, like if I lived in a small community of people, not only would I have help with the daily tasks, maybe we are helping each other with meals or childcare, but it's also like if my kids could run free in the neighborhood or in the countryside with other kids, half their needs would be met. Boom. Just like that. Done. I don't have to worry about their nature connection. Therefore, I don't have to worry about their little fragile nervous systems. Therefore, I don't have to worry about whether or not they're getting what they need to develop in healthy ways. So the lack of nature connection is a huge one in my mind. But then they are also being held within this community where other people represent security and safety for them, not just me. Yes. They can go to the neighbor's house and they know that that person will give them a snack or they can go over here to this elderly woman who is like so excited to have them come visit her every day. And they build a sense of I'm okay in the world. I'm safe because I belong. And so what we're doing as mothers is we're trying to create the sense of belonging for our kids and ourselves and our partners. So it's not just about the daily tasks. It's about this felt sense. Let's say... If it's important to me that my kids are connected to their creative spirit, without the village, the community, I feel it's on me to develop their creativity single-handedly because they're also not getting into the public school. But if I had a small community of people, there would be creative folks doing their creative things and I'd send them over and they would have some level of mentorship or even just witnessing of someone else living their creative life. And I can check it off the list. They are exposed to this other human being who exposes them to creativity. And every other value that we hold would be collectively imparted to our children, not just from us. It's massive. It's on so, so, so many levels that we're disadvantaged, disempowered through the disconnection because of the lack of the village. It's at the core of all of our problems. For those of you listening, I'm just like fist pumping and raising my hands and double thumbs up. It's just like, preach. Yes. And I think it speaks to this absurdity, the absurd notion of doing it all yourself. When you list all these things out and you realize that it's not just the literal tasks that are hard to do all by yourself, the dishes, the laundry, like that's impossible in and of itself. But it's also on top of that, 
oh, you're supposed to create safety, belonging, play, nurturance, adventure, risk-taking, community. One person cannot create community for another person. That's a lie. It's just not the definition of community. These things kind of break my heart a little bit because you know how much our kids need this and we need this. So how? What are you doing? You have a course on this. You have a chapter on revillagers. I hope your next book is called Revillaging. I don't know if you're going in that direction. Moving slowly in that direction. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes the last chapters of a book, you're like, oh, that's the next one. You know this already, though. So let's talk about the emotional side of it for the grown-up, because I love what you said about the kid. But for the grown-up, the quote that I read, I haven't always felt supported and treasured by other women. I think there's a huge fear in those little tiny risks of being vulnerable or brave or trusting. The word you use is trusting other people. What changed for you? Interestingly enough, the bulk of my healing when it comes to connections with other women has happened through my professional development and through recognizing the need for... I started writing. That was where I kind of like moved into this career that I'm in. We moved to Mexico. I lived in Mexico for four years with my kids, my ex-husband. And I was able to slow my life down and observe completely different cultural norms that were very much more family-centric, community-centric, walkable communities, totally different, completely different. So many of those needs that I talk about that are going unmet are actually being met in communities that are more walkable, in societies that are more family-centric. There's a lot of other needs that aren't being met because there's also often an element of poverty is in the mix. When I was able to slow down and be in a different culture and I started writing, I was writing specifically about my experiences as a mother and about all of this like deconstruction of the norms and narratives that I was doing outside of the culture that I'd been raised in. And because I was writing to mothers and about motherhood largely, it was that being able to connect through writing first was part of, for me, the learning to be a little braver and a more vulnerable. It also, living in a different country and having to learn a new language, I had to increase my vulnerability. I had to up my vulnerability and my bravery. It was sort of an intensive, and this was, whatever, 12 years ago now, 10, 12 years ago, I was in this moment where it was all about courage and vulnerability for me. If I wanted to get the most out of our time abroad, I had to be vulnerable and courageous. If I wanted to follow this passion for writing, I was going to have to be vulnerable and courageous. That kind of started it. And then the kinds of conversations that were happening, and this was back when like blogging was the thing. Yeah. People were like blogging about their daily lives and just a different, different cultural thing was going on around that kind of fun to reflect on. And there were so many rich conversations happening back and forth with these other mothers who were like, oh my God, yes. Like it was so rich to be able to connect around things that felt real and meaningful to me that were not just the day-to-day like, oh, hey, how's it going? And the small talk on the playground kind of thing that never really did much for me. So I learned the power of vulnerability in that sort of intensive period. And then we ended up moving back to the States and I decided to pursue coaching. And I just had this feeling that I wanted to try like a small group coaching thing. It's something about the group. I want to be having these conversations at a group of women. 
So I tried. And the first time was like over Uber conference, which is this like back in the day. It was over the phone. We were just meeting over six women over the phone. And it was so powerful. I mean, it still brings me to tears to think about because I was terrified. But I could feel the richness. I could just feel that there was so much richness. And I just got braver and braver. I would try another thing and try another thing. And then we moved to video calls. And I was like, what? Can I really do this? And so it really was. It's been virtual women's groups that really have shown me the power of connecting with other women. And then it started happening in my own personal life. Most of that growth happened first virtually for me, which is really interesting. Oh, that's interesting. Ooh, that makes a lot of sense because what you can do virtually is you can kind of break it down into the different constituent parts. So it could be just audio. Like if there's less risk when you're talking to somebody that lives across the country, you're like, well, that mom's in New York, so I might as well just tell her like my real feelings because who cares? I'm not going to see her. Yeah, it's like you're not going to then run into her next door and she now knows your whole vulnerable story and you're then afraid she may or may not want to hang out with you again. And, you know, it feels a little bit different. And there's also a container. Yeah. And then I got to start figuring out because I got to create the container what do I think is important? And then I've just through the years gotten better and better at creating the container in such a way that facilitates connection among people. That was the beginning for me. And then I started just realizing the richness of connections with other women in general and in my personal life and my local community as well. So there's a couple of things I want to ask you about that because so many people on this call are going to be business owners. So they're going to have these same questions. One of them is, what is it now? You've moved to video calls. So take us into the business side of things a little bit. What do you do for people? What does it look like today? Today, I'm kind of doing a hybrid of teaching, coaching, group facilitation, retreats, writing. My biggest program is called Motherworthy, and we meet year-long. It's a year-long program. And I have currently four, kind of four and a half groups going, and it's roughly 15 women per group. We have a topic every month and we meet three times a month and there's sort of exercises and all kinds of ways to dive into your own personal growth process with a group. It's all about self-development. It's all about self-awareness, building self-compassion and really better understanding ourselves so that we can become better community members. Because so much of it that I have come to realize is that, yes, there's the system and structures, but just as important to look at are all the narratives we've internalized that are now keeping us from feeling either worthy of the community and the connections we create, of able. I mean, how many of us have neighbors all around us that we just don't even know? It's not like they're saying, don't come meet me. Then we're just not doing it. Why? But Why? digging into yeah. what's going on there? What's happening in our nervous systems? What are the stories we're making up? And not just about connecting with community members, but what is it to be more authentic in our romantic relationships? What is it to be understanding our saboteurs? What's getting in our way and why? What are the coping strategies we put in place from the time we were kids? How do we upgrade those? It's a healing journey that we're going on together because I think healing is so much more powerful if we're doing it with other people who are also on healing journey. So that's part of what's the beauty of virtual connection is that you can find people who want to be doing this kind of work together. 
Yeah. And bringing together people who have at least somewhat like-hearted and like-minded and have a, a common desire to grow and heal, which is it's hard to always find in your local community. You don't necessarily know who's up for it. Well, the barriers in the local sphere can be so impossible. And that's something that's powerful about the internet, the virtual world, is you can actually find your collection of people that are going through something similar. I am smiling so much, too, because you and I have such similar programs. We meet three times a month, and it's a year-long program, right? And we're in community. And it's a model that's really, really powerful. So, and anyone listening, by the way, we need to do this for about two and a half billion moms. So don't do it, right? <laughs> There's no shortage of people that need this. So please go build. The other question that came to mind was you started writing. You were living in Mexico. I know some of your story from the book, but can you talk about how are you doing financially? What did you do to make it all work? So we had the privilege of having a house back in Austin where we were living before we moved to Mexico that we were able to rent out. And we had a little bit of extra beyond our mortgage coming in from that. Not a lot, actually, but the cost of living is so low in Mexico, so we didn't need very much. And then my husband at the time got a job. He was in solar electric sales and he was able to find a job working remotely and didn't make much money at all. And then I started freelance writing for various they're all e-how and all these things back totally, in the day. Totally. Well, we made that first year that we lived in Mexico collectively $20,000 for the year. And we were living like kings. Wow. So we, we just didn't need much. And living like kings, I say that we also had, especially back in the day, not this super high standard in terms of like, we didn't need a fancy house. We just wanted to be somewhere that was right in the city center that would got us out into the community and we could walk anywhere we wanted and go sit at a cafe. Living in line with your values, in line with what you believe in, which is exactly. probably better than a king. Right. We weren't in, into fancy, so our needs were really well met abroad in so many ways. But yeah, we didn't just didn't need a whole lot of money to live on. We had the privilege we were living on dollars in a peso economy. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, I want to come back to, you said you started, we're going through this journey of revillaging, but also connecting to other women. And part of it is by writing online and then hosting these groups, actually, we're able to find some of this. Talk about the trust and the vulnerability that you needed in the like, <laughs> I don't want to say in real life, because virtual is real, right? It's still real. But in the space of actually being in the same room as someone or the same town as someone. Yeah, it is a different thing. I think in part because those needs are a bit more personal. Yes, it is personal, is vulnerable to share your story with someone online in a group setting. Yeah. That's vulnerable. But wondering whether the person's going to be there when you get sick to help you in your most vulnerable state or who's going to help with the day-to-day -day things like the carpool or the childcare. And it's a different kind of connection. And it's a different level of commitment to one another when it's in person. I think the tough thing about it is that people are so spread thin, so spread thin. One of the things that I think is so beautiful about having a virtual group or something that we're getting some of our needs met virtually is that it takes some of the pressure off of our local connections, especially while we're building them. If we're hungry for more local community, we can take some of the pressure off. Let's say 
I meet someone new in my community who I'm excited about, what can often happen if we have so many unmet needs that we're putting all our hopes and dreams on this person, like, yeah, need this to be a person who meets this need and this need and this need and this. What our children are doing to us. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Exactly. And people who have a sense of desperation for a sense of belonging for good reason right now. And so when we can say, okay, I'm already feeling heard and seen and validated and valued and my worth is being reflected back to me and all these things are already happening for me, then this person, I can get to know them slowly and I can really vet them and I can decide over time, just like in a healthy dating process. Right. You don't just jump in and tell someone your entire life story in the first date and somebody does that with you, then it's a red flag. Right. Right. You don't know them well enough to tell them their whole life story. You don't know that you can trust them. But we do this with friendships. We put a lot of pressure on new friendships often if we're super hungry to have a lot of our needs met. So I think that's one of the beautiful things about virtual connections. I'm a huge fan. So interesting. It is true because you can start to meet your needs. And one of the things that I'm taking away from this is a connection with someone can meet one need. Yep. This can be the person that tells amazing jokes. Like we just laugh every time we see each other. And I do have a friend like that. It's a dad in this town. And for some reason I turn into a comedian and I just crack him up and like we laugh and then we leave. And it's always at the coffee shop. He doesn't have to be anything more than that. I say absurd things to him. It's like off color. Like, I don't know who, why, but anyways. I just think it's a super important point. I think we don't know how to do community well because it has been modeled for us. We've sort of idealized it in ways that I don't think are very accurate. If we were living in a village of people, it's not like they would all be our best friends. Everyone would be different needs. Some people we just wave at every day and it sends a signal to our nervous system every morning when we see pass by, like, I belong here as a neighbor. That's it. It's a connection that is needed in order to foster that sense of belonging. But it can happen in micro ways all throughout the day. That's right. For years, I had a woman that we carpooled with, and that is absolutely all we did. We were both on top of it, organized about it. It was so helpful. And we didn't have to be friends. No. I didn't need to be friends with this person. I needed this to be a support role. And that was it. And for us to have that sort of agreement, like, we're not doing the friend thing. I I got my friends. I need a good carpool. Someone is reliable. I know that we're both organized about it. And that I go back to that over and over in my head of like, God, thank you. I'm so glad that I had that community member to help alleviate some of the pressure of all of driving around and feeling crazy. If you are thinking about joining us in the Wise Women's Council, make sure you apply to join us during our spring or our fall enrollment. Head to startupparent.com slash WWC to find out more about the Wise Women's Council. Oh, this deconstruction is so beautiful and so helpful because I remember I was talking on Voxer in the middle of the pandemic to, I've got like eight close friends on Voxer. I talk to them all the time. Like, I love them. They fill my soul, but they're not here in person. And I was telling one of them and I was like, I just need to know 20 people's names. I don't want to be friends with them. I just need to know their names and I need to know their dogs. And it's that rhythm. It gives you that felt sense of safety because you walk out the door 
And then you see Bob, the neighbor, walking his dog and Chelsea or Olivia doing this other thing. Like, it's just that wave. There's nothing more than that. We might stop and chat about like our town just had this thing about I'm in New York. So it's like whether or not we're going to allow dispensaries in various towns. And so like we might talk about marijuana together and then not talk for two months. And that's fine. Yeah, and that's fine. We don't have to make it a whole lot more than that. I share a driveway with three other neighbors and it's kind of great because in any given day, we're going to run into each other because we're both going to our cars, coming from our cars. We're all sort of, it's a convenient place. And we'll shoot the shit for a couple minutes. And I have a different kind of relationship with some of the neighbors than others. But I think it's important that we ask ourselves over and over again, what does this relationship want to be? Such a good question. What does this person seem to want and need? And what do I seem to want and need from this? Let's meet there. And sometimes one of the places I see a lot of rub and friction is when one person is really wanting it and needing it to be something different than the other. And then that's when uh, a lot of harm and pain is often caused and felt. And I will say that I'm in an interesting place in my own life where I'm very, very selective about who I let into my life right now because I'm maxed. I'm just maxed. And what a privilege, what an honor. Yeah. What an amazing thing to be able to say that I now feel resourced enough in my connections that I actually now have a new problem. And that is that if I add anything more, I will not be able to tend well to those I'm already connected with. I'm already on the edge of that. I already don't talk to my closest girlfriends as often as I want to. And I feel often the sense of like, ah, oh, I need to check in with so-and-so and so-and-so and so I just don't have the space. My yeah. work life is taking up a ton of time. My kids, even though they're almost grown, still, they take up a ton of my heart space. I connect with them almost every day, you know, all of them at some point during the day. So my bandwidth for new connections is narrow. I don't have a whole lot of space. And if someone were to come into my life and want to be my friend, they might be the most amazing person. Yes. I'm probably not going to be super open to it because I know that I will not be able to give them the attention that they deserve to be given. But that's not personal. That's not about them. I've been on the opposite side of that before for many years. And now I have more respect for that. What do you need? What do you want? What do you have capacity for? And let's establish that early on in a connection. I mean, I have actually a new neighbor who moved in who's a friend of a friend and she's delightful. And I'm so excited. She's three houses down. And we right from the start, I said, I got a busy, full life. I'm so excited that you're here. I'm up for occasional walks. I'm up for occasional tea. If you don't hear from me for like weeks, it's absolutely not about you. I think you're amazing. I'm so excited to have you as a neighbor. And I'm crazy at all these projects. My life is cool. And she's like, awesome. Me too. Here's where I'm at. And we just communicate about it right from the start. So we don't have to guess. So beautiful. Be a grown ass friend. Really? That's your next 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 book. That should be. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great book, How to Be a Grown-Ass Friend. I just want to empathize with each part of what you're saying. Being maxed, the person on the other end, like hoping for connection and then not getting it from someone, and empathizing with the person who's coming to you and not being able to fulfill that. I see this often as like, by being a vocal person, by being a writer or a podcaster out there and speaking about these things, 
you come with a sense of safety to people who are like, oh, that's what I want. And you're the most visible person. I want that with her because I know that she's doing it. This is part of the mission of what I'm doing with the Wise Women's Council is I want to connect people to each other. I want to form those groups for them to help them establish that. And I remember when I was younger, I think it was with Danielle Laporte, but I was like 28 and I just loved her. And I went to a thing and we talked in the background afterwards and I had this longing. I like just wanted to be friends with her. And I saw her band and like who she hung out with. And I was, I want that. But this little light clicked and I was like, oh, but also I can build that. She built that at some point. They started that at some point. And taking that lens and turning to the side and being like, this conference where I'm at is probably full of people who want this and I can start my own band, right? There's six people here and in the future, I'm gonna be Danielle Laporte to someone else, but they need to start their own band. Otherwise, it's the same problem we're talking about over and over again, which is trying to have one person fulfill everyone's needs. I can't. That's the wisdom of Einstein. That's the other math equation that doesn't work. It doesn't work. We need different math. Absolutely. And I like to think of envy as this way of better understanding what our longings are. Yeah. If we're envious of something, probably there's something there that we really want to embody. We want to be a part of our own life experience. And so, yeah, there's somebody out there who you really, really want to be friends with. What are the qualities in them that you're attracted to? And there are more of those people out there. And sometimes if you're a visible person or a vocal person, you're attracting a lot of folks to you. We've just got to understand the capacity that people have. Yes. You have a want. The want is valid. The desire is valid. You're in the right space because you're here in this community. And then consider that there's 10,000 people in this community that are also listening there who want to talk. That's so cool. Okay. So follow-up question. A little bit earlier, we talked about the pattern language of community figures, like the ability to just talk to one person or another. And that's enough, right? But some listeners might feel guilt about this being too transactional. What do you do about that where it's like, wait, is that okay? Is it okay that it's just a carpool person? What do we do? Yeah, I think that that goes back to that. Sometimes there's that inequity, this disconnect in what people are needing. So I think it can come across as or feel transactional to, to a person if either it's not really meeting needs for them that are core, or if there isn't heart and compassion in the connection, or if they're really needing a lot of other things. So if I've got 90% of my needs met over here, what I really need is somebody to help me with driving, then I obviously, I don't want to give the impression to somebody who has 90% of her needs unmet and she's hoping that by joining a carpool with me, she'll get to be my friend. That's why I think we need to have those conversations early on up front and say, you know, I am so grateful. I don't have a lot of space. And this takes a lot of courage. Yes, it does. I don't have a lot of space right now for developing more friendships. And I'm so here for this carpool relationship because this is a need that I'm trying to meet, you know? And that might sting. It might. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's be more honest. Let's be more transparent. It's also kind. You're not stringing them along. It feels painful for a short moment, but then it's freeing. Yeah. And you're setting a boundary. I want to touch on just a couple of the other things that you said in the book, because I think that in terms of revillaging, this is so essential. You talked about you signed up for 
an African dance class? And what else did you do? Like, what are the little things that people can do just to start inching their way towards it? So a moment in my life that was so pivotal was at that same place where whatever, before we moved to Mexico and I was so burned out with a newborn, a two-year-old, both of whom were nursing, a six-year-old I was homeschooling, a 13-year-old who was starting to go off the rails. And I was so burned out and I had to start relaxing some of those ideals. And the other thing I realized I absolutely needed was some space from my family. I was going to lose my mind if I didn't get a break. And I was getting basically none, no breaks. And that was partly because I wasn't wanting to be away from my kids because I had all these aspirations. I was so connected. I was so bonded. I was so attached to them. But that was also me not understanding how important it was for them to form healthy attachments with other people. And my perfectionism, thinking that other people, like grandparents who might then take them to McDonald's, and I was like, oh, God, no, I can't. I have to like protect them from this thing. I'd be like, it's all me. I'm the only one because I'm the one who holds these standards. It was not sustainable. In that moment of my life, I basically carved out Tuesday nights. I had a girlfriend who lived in my neighborhood who invited me to a knitting circle. And so I started going to this knitting circle every Tuesday night. And it was in and of itself transformative because it was something regular that I could look forward to that met my need for creativity, intergenerational connection with all these different women, feeling heard and seen, empathized with because the conversations we were having were really rich. It was local. So I was getting to know people right there in my neighborhood. And I was so blown away by how much better I would feel when I would leave. And I was like, okay, I'm on to something here. So then I decided that what I also wanted was to extend that. I really wanted to be doing something physical on the regular. So I joined a rowing team that was also met on Tuesday nights. And so my husband then was just coming home a few hours earlier. And that was our agreement that he'd be home by whatever, four o'clock in the afternoon. I'd take off, go to rowing. After rowing, I'd go to knitting. And the rowing experience met other needs. I got to be out on the water. I got to be in a team. I was in a boat with seven other people. And I didn't even tell any of the people that I was rowing with that I was a mother. (laughs) I was so desperate to carve out a sense of self outside of motherhood that it was months before they even knew I had any kids, much less four kids. That every once in a while, people would be like, oh, what are you up to? And I'm like, oh, you know. And I would just talk about other stuff because I was like, I need you to see me. Help me see me differently was basically what I was doing. Please help me see myself as something other than this life that I'm totally immersed in and drowning in. It was transformative. Tuesday nights were my nights and then Wednesday nights were my husband's night. And he went off and did whatever he did. He was most of the time going to the bar with his buddies, but that was none of my business. None of my business. What he did with his time, because there's something about that. Then it was also meeting our needs for self-authority and autonomy. You get to be a human first. That was my night to be human. Not mother, not wife. I got to be a creative person, an active person, a teammate, nature-connected person. It was essential. And that regularity So I always knew it wasn't like so much of what I see over and over is that a mother I'm working with will get a night away and she comes back 
And she feels maybe even worse when she comes back home because she doesn't know when she's ever going to get it again. That's like eating a meal and not knowing when you're good to get to eat again and wondering why you weren't satisfied. And going to a buffet and eating like tacos and sushi at the same time and trying to stuff yourself, right? Like also you have that night away and you're like, what do I do? I got to do everything. (laughs) And then you feel sick. Totally. And then you don't know when you're ever going to eat again. We have to get used to this idea of regularly feeding ourselves. We need regular nourishment. It's not enough to just be like existing on crumbs every once in a while. Oh, just mic drop for you. Yes. And I joke with my partner, I can put kids to bed five nights a week. That's plenty. That's tons. Yeah. And we share it for the most part. But it's just a reminder to myself that like five out of seven is a really high number of time to spend with your kids. And I am putting a lot into my children and they can miss me two nights a week. In fact, I don't think they miss me. They're like, oh, you were gone? Whatever. I didn't notice. But yeah, that regularity. There's also something if you are a type A or you're an organizer or a planner or a doer, I find so much relief in joining something that I'm not organizing, right? Especially in the beginning, something with low stakes. So rowing might be higher stakes because people need you. You need a certain number of people in the boat or you need a partner. That accountability can be really helpful in various capacities. But sometimes I just need to go somewhere where they also won't miss me if I don't show up. Like there's no judgment or shame. You know, wine and paint every Wednesday night and show up when you can. Like it's an open community offering. And you're like, cool, cool, cool. Cool. I made two this month. Exactly. It really just depends on what you're needing most because there's not a fixed rule for this. But I do think that to be able to sort of take stock of where you are and what those needs are. Yeah. Like right now in my life, I have regularly, I go to my community choir on Wednesday nights, which is like so soul fulfilling. And Thursday nights are contra dancing. And usually I go, I go to my gym five days a week or so and have all these little needs met. The choir and the dancing are big needs for me. They're not little. They give me so much life. But like going to the gym, what part of what I love about it is that these are people I would probably never hang out with otherwise. Yes, yes. You know what we talk about? We talk about maxing our weight on the bench. (laughs) Totally. Totally stuff that I would never talk about otherwise. And it helps remind me that I am this whole person with lots of different interests and needs. And Whenever someone sees me in a new way, I get to see me in a new way. Yes. Yes. It reminds me, I am many things and I don't have to box myself into any one thing. And so I've identified those needs that are most critical for me to meet often. Movement for sure, music, dance, and obviously like contemplative and connected conversation, which I get mostly tons of through my work and my friends. Yeah. And Boxer and Marco Polo and all of the worlds. But there's also a need for spontaneity and a sense of freedom and a sense of flow. Sometimes I need to have like a week where I'm not planning much at all so that I can just be like, what do I want to do in this moment? Not what did I already plan for myself two weeks ago? So I think both are important that we have some regularly planned things that will keep us going back to the things we really need. And then also if you are the type of person who's constant, got your whole life scheduled and maxed with all the s- scheduled things, that we also need times where, like, you have a whole Saturday with not a d- plan, 
and nothing needing you. So you get to feel your way. What do I feel like doing? And then choose and do something completely random. I think that's also super, super important. A hundred percent. I want to remind everyone listening that your youngest is how old? 16? Yep. 16, right? So if you're listening, mine are four and six. I feel like I'm emerging into this right now. I'm getting agency back. I'm getting freedom back. The kid gets himself dressed in the morning. It's a miracle. The underwear's on backwards, but it's okay. And at night, he just started reading books to himself. So I can get him into pajamas and then he'll read for 30 minutes and then I'll help up with some words. But in the earlier phases, if you have a kid that's under four, I think this is very mushy and soupy and swampy in so many different ways because there is this total overwhelm of giving your body to another person and being on someone else's timetable and I want to know what you would have to say about that. Like if people are listening to this and they're like, but I have a one-year-old. I'm tethered to a pump. Yeah. What bites do you have for them? It is a completely different season of life. I think we've got to recognize the uniqueness of different seasons and honor the fact that things will continue to change. It doesn't always feel like it in the moment. Yes. They continue to change. You won't always be where you are right now. Again, it's kind of like what I said earlier about like, what does this relationship want to be? What does this moment of your life want to be? What would be the richest version of this moment of life? When I had babies, I had a completely different lifestyle than I have now. Completely different lifestyle. I was attached to parenting for all its joys and depletion that it brought. And I basically had like kids. I was dripping with kids. I had was dripping with more thing, but I was just like in it, completely in it. And I didn't actually want to be away from my babies. Not for long. Not long at all. Actually, it didn't feel natural to me. So I am absolutely not advocating for leaving your one-year-old if you really don't feel ready for that yet or not leaving for long. What I would say is that it is important for our kids, starting from a young age, to develop attachments with other caregivers And so that the burden doesn't fall on us. We're training our kids how to get their needs met. And if they think that mom is the best and she's the only, then look out. You have set yourself up for a life of not only depletion, but potential codependence, really. We need them. We need whoever it is. Find other people who can also love your kids, show them what it is to be cared for and cared for differently. It's okay. It really is okay. And part of that is you have a partner who wants to be an engaged father or another mother. It's so important that we be able to let them figure it out. If the babies came through our body and drank milk from our body, there is going to be greater ease in connection and needs meeting often. But other people can learn it. It might just take a little longer and we have to learn how to increase our capacity for the discomfort in the moments when our kid is crying for us, but they're fine. They're safe. They're with someone who loves them. You just took my heart through so many things. There's like a roller coaster of the up and the down, just the relief and the sadness and all of it. Just, I yes. didn't do that very well when my babies were little. There was yeah. more in that mix too. My ex had a drinking problem that in a lot of moments, it prevented me from 
feeling like I could leave them for long periods and know that he was going to be responsible, that changes things. And it's not just that. Sometimes there's mental illness. Yes. Yeah. Or you're a single parent or... Or the other parent, the person you're parenting with, has a really short fuse. They get angry and they yell at your kids or whatever it is. Yeah. I don't mean to oversimplify this part of it. I understand that there's a lot of reasons that mothers get super attached to their kids and form this sort of dependency. But if it's not your partner, then let it be somebody else. Find other people. Go through the trouble. Take on the work of finding more community members that your kids can be healthily attached to because they need it as much as you do. They really do. They need to know that they're being held within a community of people and not just a single family household. This is another entire episode that I could dig into with you, this topic. I love that we touched on it. What I appreciate most is, here's what I'm hearing. It's a reframe from, I'm the only one that can do this. I'm the only one that can provide. I am the most attuned to them. To, here's another person that can love you. Here's another person that can care for you. And there's a deficiency in thinking that other people are incapable. And there's this abundance in believing that like, actually, I want you to know that there's 20 people who can love on you and that you're going to be well taken care of with all of these people. There's so much wrapped in, in this because when we live in a world where we subject mothers to feeling worthless or feeling less than, sometimes we cling to that identity and we want to be really good at it. And so it's really hard to let go of. But I think that's so powerful as a seed for people listening. It's okay for other people to love your child and it's really good for them and it's really good for you. And part of the way that we build that capacity within ourselves is by building more of a sense of identity outside of motherhood. Because if motherhood is our solo or primary identity, then we're going to feel, who am I then if I'm not needed all the time? That's right. That's where the codependency comes in. I'm going to be okay as long as everyone else is okay. My well-being hinges on whether or not everyone else needs me for things. Yes. Yeah. It's a setup, but it's also not really fair to anyone because it's also contributing to this myth of hyper-independence and the villagelessness that we all feel when we're like, I'm the one. It's an inflated sense of self-importance also. There's a risk there. And it's often with all the best intentions. It certainly was for me. My whole being wanted to be attached to and protecting these kids. Everything in me. But that was partly because I wasn't looking around and seeing all these other competent caregivers. Those who were competent, I was happy to hand them off to. But if I knew that what was going to happen when I walked away is they were going to get plopped in front of the TV and fed junk food, then why would I do that to my children? That was the sort of extreme version of the narrative that I was telling myself, even if that wasn't happening all the time. And this is so powerful. This is so helpful and useful. I think there's so much unlearning and unpacking and discovery to do. And you are such an advocate for remembering that like, you can be a mother and expand and explore your own identity and rebuild the village that you need. A piece of this I want to flip on its head, too, is you were talking about what types of roles we can get from other people, the carpool mom, the dog mom, the neighbor mom, all of that, or the dad. Do you ever think about it in terms of what you have to offer other people? Like, I'm great at gardening. Well, you can see the plants behind me, but I have 50 tomato plants next to me. 
and I give them out. It's part of my like community offering is I have six for the school and six for the daycare and six for this. And then I just go on the buy nothing group and I'm like, anyone need a tomato? But I'm great at that. I'm great at making one type of chili and spaghetti. Like there's different roles that I have. I'm also really good at talking about bodily functions and sex. And so like I offer to other parents, like, by the way, if your teenage girl needs to talk about any of this, like I can talk about all of it. How do you think about that when you're offering or when you're defining your roles and capabilities? The reason I think it's so important is that we often deplete ourselves when we offer from a place that doesn't light us up too. that the more we can offer to our community, be in community around our gifts, around our strengths, around things that light us up, the more sustainable that giving is going to be. One of the things that comes most naturally to me is having rich conversations like this with people who are not as far along on their journey. So I just recently had my 22-year-old was like, hey, my friend is one of her roommates. She's with this douchebag of a guy and she really needs to talk to somebody who can talk some sense into her and just give her some support. And so we went and we had tea and we chatted for a couple of hours and I can play sort of a mentor role and talk to her about what healthy relationships look and feel like and talk to her about the douchebags that I was with and how that worked out for me. And that to me is like the most natural thing in the world is to have these real conversations about what is healthy, talking about her worth and her lovability and really sort of being a counselor role to my kids' friends. That's something that I do a lot of. And then too, like being the kind of person who like I love song circles and I love being in community in that way. And then I love bringing those songs back into other areas of my life and teaching those songs in different places. So being able to connect through music and song. And like when my kids were in elementary school or younger than they are now, I'm not really interested in being on the PTO. It's not my thing. I tried it a little bit. Yeah. It didn't do it for me. But I'll be the one who goes on their camping trip. That sounds great. Same. <laughs> totally. Sleep on a mat. I will pee in a porta potty I don't care at all. I actually really love camping. And I'm going to volunteer in ways that light me up. And that I can feel a wholehearted yes to. Because it's really not benefiting any- anybody for us to be volunteering in all these roles that are not working for us. Yeah. I do a lot of fiber arts. And when my kids were little, that was a lot of what I was doing in terms of volunteering. It was like, I'll be the one who goes in and teaches the knitting to the the little kids. And because I love it. And what we want to meet our community in places that light us up. Otherwise, it's another place that we're starting to feel depleted. And that's not the world we're trying to create is more no, we're not doing a field that. It's like when my kid asks me to play video games and I go, no, I don't like them. Yeah, I don't like them. Go play with your dad. 40 years on this planet, never liked them. No, it's not for yeah. me. But I will do this with you. Yeah, when my kids were little, that equivalent was like dress up and make believe. I just don't really connect with it. It doesn't work for me. But I'll play a board game and I'll go to the park and we can throw the yeah, the ball, we can be active, but I don't want to do the imaginative fairy, you be the princess. And at one point there was this, you be the cow and I'll be the princess. And I was like, no, I'm done. <laughs> nope. Too real. <laughs> I'm not the cow. Oh my God, that's really funny. I want to end on a metaphor because I love metaphors and I love songs and I have a song in my head right now for this. So this is going to be fun. The metaphor I have that's been like building in my head is It's like our community is like a kitchen 
and you are the tools. You can be some of the tools in it. So you can be a spatula or you can be like maybe you're the stove. And you were talking earlier about how like you're full with friends. You don't need 17 fridges. There's space for a fridge, a microwave, a stove, some specialty appliances, but like your kitchen gets full. And everyone's kitchen is a different size too, right? And like the transactional nature, like it's okay to be a spoon. It's okay to be a pie slicer and to be like, you know what I'm really good at? Slicing pie. You can borrow my pie slicer once a quarter (laughs) for the holidays. And the song, okay, I'm not a singer, you are, but I want to be a singer. The song that's coming to mind is like, I can be a spoon, I can be a spatula, I can be a Cuisinart. Do you know that song? I can be anything you like. Anyway, so that's the song, and it's going to be in my head for the rest of the day because of this conversation. And I think I'm going to have this forever because it's going to be like, I can be a fridge, I can be a stove, I can be a microwave. People listening will know this song. You're going to laugh so hard. And that's a wrap. I love that metaphor so much. It's these like multi-tools we don't want. These are lame, these tools that are both the refrigerator and the microwave and the stove. And the like, why are we trying to do that? Why are we doing that to ourselves? Why do we expect that from others? And my husband doesn't like rice cookers. He's like, I don't want a rice cooker in my kitchen. I'm like, it's your kitchen. We can cook rice in the pot. I recently, I let in a friend. This is like kind of a big deal for me. I was like, she fulfilled this one specific thing. She is another local visionary entrepreneur who's like scaling her business and she's in a similar place. I was like, you're in because I need yeah. to have that conversation with somebody locally on the regular. That's it right. Was a specific tool I needed in my kitchen in order to help me be my the best version of myself. That's right. Oh, that's good. Right. And you might spend a couple of years making pies and then you may be done making pies and like it's not the fault of the pie slicer. Yeah. And then you might have space for some other kitchen tool when you're in a different phase of life. It keeps changing, but we got to be honest about where we're at and what capacity we have. And right now, moms are acting like they're trying to be the one bowl that does it all. And it's yeah. like, wait a second. You know, actually, you're going to need some running water. You're going to, okay. All right. Metaphor, where are you well? <laughs> Beth Berry, where can people find out more about you? Where do you want to point them and direct them? Yeah. So, revolutionfromhome.com is my website, Revolution from Home on Instagram and Facebook. You can find me. My year-long program, Mother Worthy, starts in the fall. Sign-up starts in like September, late August, early September. I've usually got some kind of course running. I'm running a relationship course right now and all kinds of stuff. Retreats in the summer, lots of different ways. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Most business advice just doesn't work for parents. That's why I made a leadership incubator and a support group for business moms where we teach business skills and life skills that actually work for people with kids and people with caretaking responsibilities. It's called the Wise Women's Council. We've been running it for six years now and we open only twice a year for enrollments, once in the spring and once in the fall. If you want to join a brilliant group of women who are navigating parenting and entrepreneurship and business and life all all while raising kids, the Wise Women's Council is a year-long program, and we have designed it with a rhythm that aligns with life instead of fighting against it. We believe in designing work structures that sustain your drive for the long term rather than burning you out. It's a 12-month program with plenty of white space. If you want to find out more about this program and what people have to say about it, head over to startupparent.com WWC. It's called the Wise Women's Council, and the link is right in our main navigation bar. So if you go to startupparent.com, you can find out more about the Wise Women's Council today.
Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. It is a pleasure to be in conversation with you. You can find out more about everything we talked about and all of the show notes here on your podcast player, or you can head to our website, startupparent.com. I want to give another shout out to all of our amazing sponsors who help make this show possible. We are so grateful to get to work with you and partner with so many wonderful companies and organizations that are dedicated to making life better for entrepreneurs, female founders, and working parents. If you are interested in sponsoring the show and partnering with us, then head to startupparent.com slash sponsor, and you can send a note to our sponsorship team. Did you know that we have a new Substack and we have a secret podcast? Oh, yes, we do. Head to Startup Parents Substack. The link is startupparent.substack.com. I'll put the link in the show notes and check out our secret podcast. When you become a paid backer, when you upgrade your subscription and you join our community, you get lots of perks for being a community member. For our paid backers, I host a monthly private podcast where I dig into the nitty gritty of business building and parenting and everything in between. Listeners and readers get to submit questions, then I pick one or two each month and we dive deep into it. In addition, for our paid backers, we host our Startup Parent Monthly Book Club. This is where we get to talk about interesting books with other smart and interesting and kind people. And I run book club a little bit differently. You can read the book if you have time, but chances are you don't always have time to read the book. So the way I host book club is that anyone can join whether or not you've read the book because I give you a summary of it up at the beginning and then I frame up four questions from the book that we can talk about and you'll always be in rooms with other people that have read the book so we can share knowledge and wisdom. The purpose of book club is to have rich and interesting and insightful conversations not to judge you on whether or not you had a chance to read a book. So our secret podcast and our private book club those are just two of the perks that we offer for people who become community members and that's not all. I love getting to say that phrase. That's not all. There are actually a lot of other perks, and I'm going to let you discover them when you go to our Substack. Last but not least, if you liked this episode, I would be grateful if you would leave us a review. It means a lot to the show, and it helps other people find us. So definitely leave a review. I read every single one of them, and I'm so grateful when I see your name in my inbox and when I see that people are leaving more reviews. So thank you for doing that. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here, and I will see you on the next episode.